You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Okay, well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher with me and Dr. Nick Pope. Now, this episode is entitled um, Tree Hugger. And in it, I want to, uh, not so much review per se, I'm going to read sections and so on, but interact with, engage with The Oak Papers, which is a book uh, that came out last year by James Canton. And also, and if I get this right, Peter Wallaben. I should know his name by now because I buy every book he releases. Uh, Peter Wallaben, and this is a book from this year. And it's The Heartbeat of Trees. I'm wondering, um, do you have favourite trees or a favourite tree? When I was a kid and I was about five, six, we lived in a place in Chermside, which is a suburb in South Brisbane, Brisbane being the capital of Queensland in uh, northeastern Australia, for those from overseas. And being of tropical climes, we had a banana palm in the back. And I guess I wasn't necessarily over-affectionate about the banana palm per se, but there was a green tree frog that lived in it, and I was certainly interested in the green tree frog. So that's probably one of my earliest tree memories, but the other one would be when I was not yet a teen, and we used to move about uh, to find a place where the air quality suited my dad better. He had chronic emphysema, so we moved to Brisbane, and that was no good. We moved to Melbourne, and that was no good. We moved to country Victoria. That was also no good, but that's beside the point. Because we didn't have a lot of money, we moved out to a, a house on a farm. And in the middle of one of the paddocks, I could never get to it, but I could see it every evening, was a large gum tree. And I've got a, a, a great fondness for gum trees, but as a young kid, I referred to it as the Maggie and Cocky Hotel. So Maggie, short for magpie, uh, and Cocky, to refer to actually, it was glass, which is a, a pink and um, grey, very gregarious parrot. And they used to roost in it in the evening. I used to watch them roost and just love to see them. Um, basically, it was their hotel. That's where they, they rested at night. We also, as it turned out, in that same place, had a, a very big uh, apple orchard out the front. I used to hide underneath the trees. It was apples and other things. And our Labrador at the time would go and get herself an apple when they were in season. But And of course, as a kid too, I used to climb trees um, on farms and at school and whatever else. Now, one of the worst books I've ever read, I think I've mentioned this before, is a book called The Cross and the Rainforest, and it's by three, correct me if I'm wrong, Jesuits, and it was funded by some conservative American think tank, and they said that trees were only of value as timber, timber alone. They didn't have a role in Christian worship, and they weren't considered important. And of course, tree hugger is a negative term, it's used to, as in derisive sense. 
but trees are great providers of ecosystem services from providing oxygen to um, shading locations so to just to reduce the impacts of sunlight and global warming and built up areas and so on and so forth help purify water but what about trees as our kin as well other ways we can think about trees in a, a closer kind of fashion so i want to start with um reflecting upon that from the oak papers now i think i read this book wrong and what i mean is that you know if i'm really into a non-fiction book it's it's for me a real page turner i might stop if there's bits i don't understand but i don't know that you can read all of the oak papers quite like that because it, it kind of sits in in two parts there's extended pieces of prose where uh James is interacting with other people or talking about science or history. And then there's the kind of um, Dear Diary type entries where he's regularly spending time with oak trees. Uh, and you might wonder about that, but <laughs> I'll soon make that clear why I think that's a valuable thing. And it just means I think it's a book that you should read more slowly. So uh, it begins, I'm reading right from the start of the book. Uh, Some five years ago, I sought solace from the ways of the world by stepping into the embrace of an ancient oak tree. It is a venerable oak tree, 800 years old, wow, hey, 800 years, living on the edge of a wood on a small country estate a few miles from my house. From the first meeting, there grew a strange sense of attachment. I did not consciously recognise until I later began to realise the significance that trees, and oak trees especially, can have in our lives. To begin with, I went there for the gentle comfort sitting beside that grand, uh, that sitting beside that grand oak offered. I would walk away from my work as a teacher, from my life and responsibilities, and place myself in a world that was something close to Eden. That's interesting, unavoidable to, to evoke that story. I could go beyond my world into that of the oak. I felt calm descend. Once there, I wanted only to watch the comings and goings of the birds, the bees, and the rest of the creatures that formed the ecosystem that existed around and about and within the ancient oak. I felt a peace envelop me every time I stepped onto the country estate where the oak lived. Over the months that followed, I began to visit the oak rather as one might visit a friend, which might seem uh, strange, but I think it's the the real gift of this book. It's uh, James's real gift that when we stop and we make the effort to really get to know something else other than ourselves, and particularly something that doesn't move like a tree, it opens up whole new vistas and we can uh, engage in a relationship uh, that might at first seem surprising. He interacts with a number of oak trees, but there's the honeywood oak in particular and its attendant insects, its hornets and butterflies and birds, that whole community around the tree. So stepping forward to pages 85 and 86. Um, where are we? Within weeks, the tree will be crawling with caterpillars, the favourite food of blue tit chicks. I met Jonathan Jukes at the oak and he explains to me the precise timing which the birds practice so that the hatching of the blue turns the page tit young fits precisely with the appearance of oak-based caterpillars like the green oak tortix moth caterpillars which emerge each spring and feed on the fresh green shoots of the tree. It's a delicate balance. If timing goes awry one year the population of blue tits can collapse he says and without the blue tits to eat the caterpillars the oaks will lose much of their fresh leaf growth 
In the worst case, oak trees can be stripped naked by sudden explosions of tortix populations. And it's not something that he goes into, but we know now that climate change is, is driving those sorts of things out of sync and causing real problems. So he, he really engages not just with the trees themselves, but with the communities around them. However, it's mostly the tree that he engages with, which again I think is, is fascinating. So let's take page um, 122, and he's reflecting upon the existential philosophy of Martin Buber, who writes, I contemplate a tree. The tree remains my object and has its place and its time span, its kind and condition. As I contemplate the tree, I am drawn into a relation, and the tree ceases to be an it. The power of exclusiveness has seized me. Does the tree then have consciousness similar to our own? I have no experience of that. But thinking that you have brought this off in your case, must you again divide the indivisible? What I encounter is neither the soul of a tree nor a dryad, but the tree itself. Although in coming weeks, I'm going to talk to you about a book on panpsychism, which might suggest that trees do and have souls. Um, he does, in fact, refer to Wallen Ben's work, um, about the intelligence of trees and the possibility that they they respond well what we've observed now that they respond to their environment um, so where can we go oh so he's referring to for example Suzanne Samard's uh, work in the 90s about the wood wide web and I'm going to bring you another book in, in future weeks on this kind of thing um, so we'll, we'll skip on just for time because I'm Already uh, almost out of time. Um, but it is the case, and I, here's a, a quote, that speaking about plant intelligence is not taboo any longer. Which, you know, a few years ago would have seen insane uh, to, to some. One of the things about his relationship with the tree, and I think that's, that's important, uh, is the tactile nature of it. So, I step into the shelter of the western lee of the Honeywood Oak. Today, not from wind or rain, but from the sun, which already feels fierce. A hornet high above surveys the wood boughs. Um, so where am I? Inspecting the dark circle of an old woodpecker hole. I had forgotten how well my body fits into the oak in this uh, seat, my back framed in the curved form of the oak. To sit here on such a day with little sign of mankind or the modern world is to start to slip gently and happily away Almost from being human, I listen to the bird song. Uh, my own words fall away, for here I have no need of speech. So really talking about a physical intimacy with the tree. It, and, and just spending that time sitting with it and feeling it, climbing up into it, uh, and, and really, in a sense, wanting to become, well, one with the tree. It is, of course, not just a an escape from the world. He does talk a lot about, and it's kind of, I remember at one point thinking, he talks about the times that he becomes um, particularly reliant upon the tree is where relationships uh, weren't going so well. I'm thinking, dude, get out a bit, <laughs> uh, which is a bit patronizing. But, you know, you're reading along, you're thinking, well, you know, there, there are other human beings. But that said... One of the wonderful things about the, the book too is is the stories that he tells about the people that he interacts with. Um, so it's not just to escape the tree, but there's a, a human community who understands and appreciate oaks for what they are. Um, 
there's a painter who painted 50 paintings of the same oak over a three-year period going through the seasons, which is pretty much what the book does, which is go through, it's a couple of years at least, uh, and how the tree changes from dropping the leaves to being in full flush of, of growth and the caterpillars, as we talked about, and so on. He meets arboriculturalists. Who, who really understand the nature of oaks and how they grow and so on. He meets um, people who were involved in the cutting down, and that's a sad story of itself, that the honey oak, a honeywood oak stands on its own. And if you get any understanding from some of Wallenben's earlier works in this whole wood wide web is that trees really aren't meant to be on their own. They, they share nutrients, and they share carbon dioxide through the soil. They are communal type creatures. Uh, and he also talks uh, about someone he describes as someone who works with wood as a wood magician in terms of the things that they can do. So it's not just a um, over-romanticized book that doesn't say, okay, well, we do use timber, we do use trees, but nonetheless, um, like hunter-gatherer societies, when they hunt for an animal and they'll, they'll thank its spirit for feeding them or, or whatever else, or they're engaged in cave painting, these sorts of things, totem animals which they use, there's a sense in which you can have a respect for something while still using it, still employing it. And that's the sense you get from the quote-unquote wood magician. One of the things uh, that you do get a strong sense of, and it's, one of the th and it's one of these things I think that made me think, I'm reading this too fast, I'm reading this too fast, is the sense of repetition. He says the same sorts of things quite a lot in the accounts of where he visits the tree and sits in the seat for a while and then goes over the short barrier and leans against the tree. And there's just this repetition of language, almost like a liturgy for those who go to church. And as I say, it carries it out through the seasons. And there certainly is a sense in which there's a spiritual quest going on. Uh, earlier in the book, uh, he recounts the fact that... Um, let me read for you a little bit. From the early Stone Ages through to the start of the Industrial Age, merely a few hundred years ago, we have been dependent upon oaks and infused with worship of those trees and religious practices centred on the most esteemed of the oaks that lay within our communities. Our wisest people, our most thoughtful leaders, have been those who served to oversee the links between us as living humans and the deities of the trees. Talks about the Romans and the Britons and the origin of the word pagan from pagus, which simply means those who didn't live in the, the cities. And then with Christianity came inevitable further realignment of the relationship between people and oak trees. Yet the relationship between the Christian church and oak trees was not always clear cut. Pardon the pun. Gospel oaks were those trademarked places on the edge of the villages where preachers held open air services to their gathered congregations. In rain they had some shelter, and in sunshine they had some shade. And what then of the figure of the green man, an image that can be seen carved into an oak, the oak beams of the finest churches and cathedrals across Europe? Then later in the book, uh, he kind of explores his own spiritual side and connection uh, to this. It doesn't have the framework of someone with a religious background to do it, and dabbles a little bit, talks to, I think the person was a Buddhist from memory, but... He, he, in chatting to a friend, well, I venture, looking into what I guess you would, you could call the spiritual side of oaks and how people who work with wood feel about trees. Paul nodded, or Paul nods, something along the lines of why it is that many of the people who worked with wood, even some of the toughest woodsmen, seem to have genuinely emotional feeling towards certain trees. So here, um, 
exploring spirituality as something to do that embodies relationships uh, with, with others, not necessarily in an overtly religious fashion. So it's a fascinating journey. It's it's a good little read of, um, what is it, excluding the end notes, of about 220-odd pages. But as I say, something that you should read slowly and just let the, the various entries kind of sink in. My takeaways um, from the book is that being with non-human creatures um, is important uh, to learn about them, uh, to be attentive to them, to take the time that's necessary to do that. He, he talks about the, the calming effect that that has and a degree of empathy that is recognising that potentially plants have intelligence against back to Wallenben's work and those of others. And even if we follow Philo Philip Goff in his book on panpsychism, uh, that they have a form of consciousness. Certainly from a Christian perspective, we acknowledge that trees are fellow creatures uh, and we need to extend respect to them. So that's um, my brief take on James Canton's book. And after the break, uh, we'll look at the heartbeat of trees. Well, welcome back. Uh, the Heartbeat of Trees by Peter Wallabin. He's, um, despite the fact I'm potentially mangling his last name, he's one of um, those authors I must always buy. As soon as I see a new book that he's got out, uh, I, I must have it. I've heard uh, in the odd interview with him. He's German and he speaks fine English, but he has someone else translate them from the German. And I must say... They read fine to me as a, a native English speaker. That it, it flows. It doesn't seem, you know, uh, translated. And it'd certainly be better than me trying to read German, which I abandoned um, year 10, my third last year of high school. Unfortunate. It's, it's much more, it's a different book to the Oak Papers. It's much more didactic, by which I mean that you, you learn a lot more stuff, I suppose, in terms of knowledge, which is not to say there's not good input on history and um, uh, what do you call it? Um, arboriculture. Yeah, arboriculture from um, from Canton's book. But this is, uh, as a forester, he's much more driven to, to talk about those aspect of things in the book. 31 shortest chapters, and there's a lesson to learn from each of them. And I've, I've identified kind of three sections, which I'll, I'll read through bits and kind of interact with. The first is, it reminds me of the book Being a Beast, which I've reviewed before, which is, is all about trying to empathetically engage with non-human creatures by trying to experience the world in the way in which they do. And and the author, whose name has gone out of my head, and I don't have the book to hand, constantly kind of uh, gets frustrated at the limitations of human senses and acknowledges that the sense data that we acquire is different in quality and quantity to non-human animals. Uh, but Peter takes a different tack uh, in a couple of chapters early on in the book. So in chapter two, 
giving your hearing a workout in nature. He wants to take a positive tack and say, so getting out amongst the trees um, and amongst nature, you can actually tune or, or develop your senses. So I'm reading from page 15. Um, if we're going to make a comparison, a more meaningful one would be volume. Dogs pick up on quieter sounds than we do simply because they have large ear muscles and can point their ears towards the sound. It's easy to see how this works. Just cup your hands and place them behind your ears, pointing forward. You'll find it makes a big difference. You can try this when you're out walking in the woods. Even if you're a long way away, you'll be able to hear the quieter birds or a deer slipping through the undergrowth. However, one part of the claim that dogs and some other mammals hear better than we do uh, because they can point their ears towards the sound and we can't turns out to be a myth. Um, and on he goes, um, recent research, however, shows that we have been too focused on external features. In fact, you and I can change the direction of our ears if we need to, but we make the adjustment internally. To do this, we need our eyes. And he, he talks about this whole tracking thing. Uh, and a bit later on, he says, you can train your ears the same way you can train your eyes. Two senses that, as we've seen, are inextricably entwined. All you need to do is keep your ears open and eavesdrop on nature. Um, for example, I enjoy hearing the call of the black woodpecker. Perhaps that's because I know it relies on ancient beaches with wide trunks for its nesting cavities and has become rarer for lack of suitable trees. Or maybe it's because of the bird's impressive size and its pretty bright red feather cap. And on his goes. But what, he, what he's trying to say is that... Um, well, to use his own words, it shouldn't be a problem for anyone to hear nature more clearly. Think of other everyday sounds that, over time, you've learned to pick out. The ring of a cell phone, for example, or the sound when a message comes through. I'm always amused when I see my fellow travellers in trains or waiting in the station give an involuntary twitch when they hear those sounds from someone in their vicinity, even when the volume is turned right down. In other words, you can train your ears to engage with these sounds. So why not get out into the trees, into the forest, and do the same? Um, a bit later on, uh, overall dogs certainly have a better sense of smell than we do. In their world, smelling things is def definitely more important than it is in ours. Our upright gait immediately puts us at a disadvantage. It's not really practical for us to put our noses to the ground to follow a scent trail. Um, although I've seen that watching things like Mountain Monsters, which is a bit of a joke series. It involves cryptids. It's a bit of fun, but they actually get down and do it. So obviously some people do. Hunter-gatherers, um, I'm completely ignorant on this, may very well do. Our sense of smell is not here to help us track prey, but to help us find delicious fruit hanging from tree branches or to find a mate. So he goes on to talk about pheromones, testosterone and all the rest of it. Um... When some people smell little or nothing out in the forest, they're not necessarily being inattentive. It could be that they have lost some or all of their ability to smell. And this is not unusual, as Dr. Sven Becker, a visiting researcher at the Ear, Nose and Throat Clinic at the University of Munich, explained recently during a local radio program I was listening to. He estimated that 20% of the population in Germany has a compromised sense of smell, and 3-4% has lost this sense completely. And even when our noses are working exactly as they should, they will never be as important to us in experiencing the world as our eyes or ears because these latter two sense organs are much more important for how we communicate with one another. However, 
we should not underestimate our noses as organs of perception. So get out there into the forest and, and I, I think there's the smell of fresh eucalyptus, for example, is just an amazing, it's just a wonderful smell. And um, the things that trees put off um, can be incredibly good for you. I mean, think about all these people who burn essential oils. Well, why not just go out there and get amongst the trees? Although this time of year, um, take care if you get um, bad sinuses through pollen like I can. So he talks about getting out about and sharpening our senses. And maybe in that sense, we can learn both to appreciate nature in general, the trees and so on in a relationship to them, but also the other animals who use more in these senses. Then there's a, a fascinating chapter on... Uh, which is entitled The Disappearing Boundary Between Animals and Plants, which alludes to this whole thing about animal, uh, sorry, plant consciousness. And he talks about the uh, philosopher Emmanuel Cochia, I think it is, who had just write, written a book about plants. And they had this conversation. Um, and he talks about, and, and this is interesting from a theological perspective, um, that his work considering plants upends our view of the living world completely, putting plants at the bottom of the high, top of the hierarchy with humans down at the bottom. I had been giving a great deal of thought to this myself. Ranking the natural world and scoring species according to their importance or their superiority seemed to me outdated. It distorts our view of nature and makes all the other species around us seem more primitive and somehow unfinished. For some time now, I have not been comfortable with viewing humans as the crown of creation, separating animals into higher and lower life forms and treating plants as something on the side, definitely banished to a lower level. So, you know, and you've seen diagrams of the tree of life and plants might be at the bottom more quote-unquote primitive animals and we, we construct this narrative that maybe evolution doesn't support and maybe... Theology, the creation texts, don't support for those of us who, who read, for example, the Hebrew Bible uh, as, as part of our Old Testament. Um, I'm just trying to find the, the really juicy stuff. Progress is being made, but slowly, and there is still a tendency to discredit unwanted discoveries by banishing them to the mystical realm of esotericism. And this is talking about the whole field of, of plant intelligence. At this point, it seems to me that it would make sense to explain what the term esotericism means. My dictionary defines it as, a, as quote, ideological movements which have as their goal the self-awareness and self-actualization of people through the citation of, among others, the occult, anthroposophical and metaphysical teachings and practices. Other definitions state that esotericism is non-religious spirituality. And he talks about the occult and supernatural phenomena. And I guess what he's trying to get at, um, well, it becomes clear a bit later on. Um, we're in the realm of things that cannot be proven, that is to say, the supernatural. I admit that metaphysics tends to concern itself with philosophical questions. For example, does God exist? Who created the universe? However, the word doesn't help much in defining esotericism. What we're left with is a nebulous idea of something spiritual and supernatural that in our day and age has negative connotations. So we're trying to grapple with the idea that this might be attached to the idea that, you know, um, plants have intelligence uh, on the one hand and not wanting to give it strange religious or spiritual attachments and on the other um, critique the kind of accounts 
um, that some people take away from the Old Testament, for example, the Hebrew Bible, that plants are lesser de- than us and, and less important. And, and I guess one of the things that, it, that he really gets upon, and again it's resonating with Philip Goff's book, which I will talk about, is the more that we do that, the more we um, make caring for these, uh, these things that aren't ourselves of lesser importance. It comes back to what I was talking about at the start, that book, The Cross and the Rainforest, that trees are just good for timber. Or we might take an economic framework and say that well, trees are just uh, good for the ecosystem services. And you get the whole hog and I guess worship trees and see them as equal on the exact same footing as, as human beings or other creatures. Or you might at the very least simply say, well, we need to, if it, it's true, and I know I haven't talked much about uh, the work that's being done, that's for another time, about it may be that it seems to be that plants share information with other plants, uh, that they may feel some form of pain that they can respond to their environment. There's been work done, I think it's with peas. I was reading um, in in Philip Goff's book, again, I'll, I'll get to this in another program, where they had uh, it was a, a forked test tube or something like that. And so there was one path where they went up and encountered food, another path they didn't. And then there was a sound being played in the tube uh, that was associated with nutrient. And then they took the nutrient away and just played the sound and the pea preferentially grew up that. It could learn from experience. It's essentially Pavlov's dog, but involving a plant. So all these things can be treated in a kind of quote-unquote mystical fashion. Christians need to integrate this into a theological model. But at the very least, we need to grasp the fact afresh that there's a lot more going on than something that's inert and it's background uh, and just seems to be kind of... Um, part of the stage for animal if not just human um, activity if you need a a sense of why that might not be right other than all this more recent work just go and grab a copy of David Attenborough's The Private Life of Plants and look at the the time-lapse photography and you see all this amazing movement and so on. And you might argue, well, that's not particularly sensate, just looking for the light or whatever else, but it's just, you get a stronger sense. Uh, and I think this is the thing that already always hurts our understanding of plants as potentially being intelligent and being fellow creatures, as they appear not to move. Uh, and we're not going all the way of the Ents, the kind of Tolkien type thing, but when you look at this, um, this time-lapse photography and you actually do see them move, uh, well, that's rather mind-blowing uh, and, and uh, perspective-changing. So it's just interesting how he, uh, uh, in this book, uh, Wallen Ben wants to grapple with that side of things. Finally, um, certainly not finally in the book, but um, he does talk about climate change and this being, you know, at, at least there being uh, an eco-connection or an ecological or climate change connection in a lot of the programs talks about the fact that uh, you know trees don't like it hot and that of course relates to um, trees stressed and dying and the migration further northward with um, with climbing temperatures but he also talks about the climate mediating impact of trees uh, and how um, you know not just the recycling of greenhouse gases but the the impact that they have on the radiation budget which is you know heat and sunlight and so on and so forth um, and I'm just trying to find a, okay, 
Where are we? Let's try this. So talking about carbon storage, once a tree falls to the ground, it either it's either left to rot or its wood is used and later burned as wood waste. In both cases, all the carbon it contains is released. All the carbon? Didn't I just explain how most of the dead wood left in the forest remains permanently in the ground in the form of humus? That is indeed the case, but it holds true only for ancient forests where an old tree dies every once in a while. The death of one tree doesn't change the microclimate and the forest remains shady and cool. And this is an important thing when you come to think about carbon offset. You go on a flight, and I don't want to demonize flying, but as a society we need to do less of it, uh, and you might buy a carbon credit, plant a tree, but the most efficient storage of carbon is about is by trees and old growth forests. That takes a, a, a time to establish. So it's an investment in the future, but if you keep pumping out greenhouse gases, gets too hot, you'll kill those forests anyway. So it's it's not a th- an idea that holds water. Things are very different when it comes to clear cuts or clearing created by storms. In these areas, the sun beats down mercilessly, which kicks fungi and bacteria into high gear. They break down all organic substances completely and make sure every last fragment of wood ends up back in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. So we need more undisturbed old-growth forests for many, many reasons, uh, including the storage of carbon dioxide and the soil profile, but also for the sake of these intelligent trees. All the carbon dioxide in processed wood ends up back in the atmosphere as well. An official in a large environmental association once told me that the average lifespan of long-lived wood products is just 12 years. After that, books, furniture or construction, lumber are waste products that are burned in incinerators where every last bit of carbon dioxide they sequestered is once again set free. Together with the vast amounts of humus on the exposed forest floor that is broken down by fungi and bacteria, Up to 260,000 tonnes of greenhouse gases are released into the atmosphere per square mile. Um, But that's not all. Nani goes to talk about the cooling effect uh, of of, of forests. So forests are important. Anyway, uh, that's only like the tip of the iceberg for that book and indeed his writing as a whole, but I can highly recommend everything that he writes. So to conclude, be a tree hugger. We need them. They need us to let them grow. Uh, and I think it should be part of Christian faith to acknowledge in, in, in praise in doxology that from the psalm. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has its home in the fir trees. And remember that the cedars of Lebanon were used to build uh, temples and, and palaces but trees aren't only for our use. They exist for their own sake and for the sake of other animals. And as a Christian, I believe for uh, the worship of God. So thank you once more for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.